Let's get ready to nibble and chew upon this remarkable banquet, because this is Bill's Big Bag of Onions. stories written and performed exclusively for the show and then dispersed with resplendently remarkable music. So sit back and kick off your shoes and allow your soul to be infused by our unique and innovative storytelling because this is Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Approximately 4,500 million years ago, the Earth was formed, and about 500 million years later came the first single-celled life. 500 million years after that, give or take, atmospheric oxygen became present in sufficient quantity to sustain advanced life forms, and so began an evolutionary process from the Cambrian explosion about 500 million years ago through to the extinction of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago and the eventual rise of the apes. 50,000 years ago, anatomically modern man left Africa and Ronald now lives in Neesden and yesterday he went shopping and bought himself a pair of trousers. silver-yellow dragon is teasing a cat curved into an unblinking and noisy arc of tension on my lawn. First socks, then a massage roller, and finally, in desperation, a bottle of nail polish. This last projectile hits the cat and knocks it out. The dragon appears to grin. With a flap of silken wings and the moonlight shimmering on myriad scales, it claims its prey and leaps into the night sky. I watch the dragon and cat combo silhouetted against the moon and ponder how I'm going to explain this to my neighbour. Canute was furious. First, the impudent waves had disobeyed his royal command. Then, fleeing the beach for the clifftop pub, he had found the door firmly barred. It was late. He knew Ethelred wasn't the most reliable of barmen, but surely he couldn't still be unready to open up. Canute shivered. His robes were soaked through. All he wanted was to dry off by the roaring fire with perhaps a bite to eat. Chef Alfred baked some exceedingly good cakes when he didn't burn them. Canute knocked hard. Then he spotted the sign beside the door. No Vikings, Anglo-Saxons only. Martin, stop! 
Martin's elbow froze. A wisp of smoke hovered between them. You're not good at this, are you? It wasn't my choice, miss. It was. Last term I said you could do carpentry or metalworking this year. You chose carpentry. I thought it was something to do with fishing, miss. Martin's elbow disappeared in another blur. Stop! There'll be nothing left! Show me what you've done. The carbonized remains of Martin's sandpaper drifted listlessly to the floor. Well, that's lovely, Martin. It's... it's very... it looks a bit... fish-like, Martin. What would you call it? A carp, miss. we have to decide is our priority. That's the most important thing. I know what a priority is. What I mean is, deciding our priority is, well, our priority. So, you've already decided then? Well, no. All I'm saying is that deciding our priority must for now be our priority prior to deciding our actual priority or priorities. Can you have more than one priority? Well, obviously, our first priority must take precedence over all other priorities. So, we need to prioritise our priorities, is that what you're saying? Well, yes, once we know what they are. hair about, beavering away, buzzing from one thing to another, my butterfly mind unable to settle. I have the concentration of a goldfish, I'm too dogmatic, and a catastrophe in a crisis, like a bull in a china shop. Stop horsing around, my wife says, but I'm a rabbit caught in headlights. I'm a bear with a sore head when I'm hungry until I wolf down a big meal and feel as fat as a pig. I suppose I'll be like that until the day I croak. A leopard can't change his spots. Ah oh well, I'm only human. I told the new head of campus that it would be best to start the lunchtime sports competition in the second week of term. He insisted on day one. I stepped out of my classroom, ready to crank up the sports, to find the badminton court occupied by eight Chinese athletes, clad in bright shiny pyjamas and waving long blades of sharpened metal. Ah, a simple oversight, he mumbled. Wednesday. Take two. As I threw the shuttle to the first badminton competitors, the side gate opened and a full gamelan band clanged its way onto the court. Another oversight? I queried. handrail tightly, 
I did not want to miss this. It was not something you could see every day. The footbridge felt solid under my feet, but could it withstand what was coming? First you just saw a faint trail of smoke, but as it got closer you could hear the hiss and roar. Then see the beast in all its fire-breathing, smoke-billowing beauty. The rails sang and the bridge trembled slightly, as I was enveloped in a dense cloud of the wonderful creature's smoky breath. And so the Flying Scotsman thundered beneath and away from me. He advanced. Lily gripped the knife, but he wrenched it from her and raised his hand to strike. A cough from the doorway stopped him, and he spun round. Madam, the coffee you ordered. Lily hadn't ordered coffee, but looked gratefully towards Banks. Damn you, Banks. Don't look like that, Stephen said as he flung from the room. I wouldn't hurt her. Later, there was a knock at the door. We are sorry to inform you, your husband was involved in an automobile accident this evening, killed by the impact. Our condolences to you. Lily's reaction was to laugh hysterically. at three. She wore a delightful straw-coloured dress. Her eyes shone brightly like a crisp lager. We sat and ordered beer. Crystal clear in appearance, white and close froth, a slow dissipating crown that left a ring on top and lacings on the glass side. Yeasty and floral aromas. Tell me what you like about me, she ventured. I took my first sip slightly bitter, overwhelmed by sugary and malty syrup flavour, moderate to high carbonation, gentle drinkability. I looked at her, and my mouth uttered, hints of ripe pear and honey, light body, sugary finish. Listening to Cone Radio 106.6 FM, and this is Bill's Big Bag of Onions. a stage, they say, and all the people in it merely players. How true. From dazzling stars to the chorus line, from bit part players to eager limelight seekers, we all play our allotted roles. Perhaps you are part of the backstage crew, a rarely seen ghost in the shadows without whom this dizzy world would cease to spin. Me? I've had many walk-on parts. I've fluffed and corpsed my way through life to polite applause, with a few flops along the way, and an occasional fair review. And now, I'm almost ready to take my final bow. 
For so long, I've dreamed of embracing you, softly encircling your neck and waist, massaging your back all over, snuggling into each rib. I'll caress your arms from wrist to shoulder, cherishing the scent of your body. All day you'll feel me on every inch of your torso. I'll sense the joy in your heart as your family see how you glow with comfort enveloped in my softness and warmth. I know our time together will be agonizingly short before you abandon me, but I'll wait patiently all year to be with you once more because I am your Christmas jumper. He winks. I reluctantly agree. We buy a big new tent at the sales and book three nights at a farm camp. The bank holiday arrives and, no surprise, it rains. The track is a quagmire. We slide into our designated pitch. How did all those tent things fit into that bag, Mummy? We'll see you on Monday, darling. Dad organises the tent. The endless multilingual instructions are blown across the field by a showery gust. The English section is obliterated. The boys and I escape to the farm cafe. Yes, my kind of break. The Douro Valley, Portugal, where hunting waterfalls, five adults, five pairs of walking shoes, five terrified expressions. The sign says to take care. No barriers, no guides, no sense. However, it's stunning. Waterfall upon waterfall, cascading over rocks into a myriad of glistening pools. So tempting, so dangerous. Tentatively, we pick our way down, heading for a sumptuous spot a hundred metres below. Clinging on, stepping over channels with sheer drops, we caution, encourage, take no risks, and follow the guy in flip-flops, carrying a freezer box in one hand, deck chairs in the other, and a three-year-old perched on his shoulders. of the chocolate Labrador world meet, but their lab romance is stymied by doggy differences. Purdy tiptoes daintily along trails. Pongo ploughs recklessly through bushes. Purdy, head held high, is elegance personified, shoulders down, ears flapping. Pongo's all tongue and slobber. Purdy is angular, pretty, her body sleek, lean. Pongo's a fridge on legs, head like a butcher's block with a snout. They sniff, then one trots and the other lollops away. Purdy, an oasis of daffodils to cavort about in, Pongo to plunge headfirst into a manky stream. Neither, it seems, pushed the other's chocolate buttons. I visit my mother. We eat shop-bought stroganoff. 
I drink wine, she sips barley water. She asks, could I do the recycling, empty the dishwasher, a lot of bending, put the flowers I'd bought in the right bars? She's been to the hairdresser, got a taxi home, a coffee morning tomorrow, laundry. She must phone Georgie, making a good recovery after her heart attack. Did I know Brian downstairs has got full-time carers? He can't remember where he lives. She has duck's eggs. Could we have them scrambled for breakfast? Could I make her morning tea strong? I can. on. She ran off in her mini-dress and jumped into the car which disappeared into the snow flurry. I sank into the armchair and phoned her. No answer. Oh well, I might as well check that unauthorised credit card transaction. Hate the cold? Want to go out half naked like a northerner? Swap your weather with a Bangladeshi for just £4 a day. Only £200 for the whole winter. So it was Sally. Explains her suntan and oblivion to the cold. I'll get it for myself, too, and save on heating. These are very lovely onions written by human beings. I am a human being. The writers are only allowed to use 100 words. We call it an onion. Animals are not able to use ironic labels, like onion, when what you are listening to is in fact not a vegetable. Indeed, animals are not able to write onions, but they do eat vegetables. This is a show for human beings. I am a human being. There was always a cloud hanging over us when we were in Gabriel's band. Actually, Tim was the founder member, but there was that cloud. Gabriel could play all the instruments better than we could. He would only let us play the songs he had written himself. On stage, he never interacted with us. He'd drive to gigs alone and he didn't drink with us afterwards. He eventually threw Tim out of the band. Or... Tim stormed off, we never quite knew. The cloud hung over us even heavier then. Having said that, it was always great getting really hammered after gigs. wants to be David. Diana's granny can't see the point. Diana's mother is supportive, but knows nothing about transitioning, gender realignment. She's sure she'll learn. She can't find any programmes on telly about it, though, or in her weekly magazines. At the bingo, no one has heard about it. Diana's dad doesn't know. Diana's mum isn't sure where he is. As Diana's mum, she's just going to have to get on with it. The doctor at the clinic is nice. He wears smart suits and aftershave. He calls Diana David. That confuses Diana's mum as she hasn't changed yet.
Rupert sat on the lorry, watching the world pass him by. A great blackness had arisen inside him of late, and at the dawn of this day he had stood on the bridge, closed his eyes, and jumped. He had not made it to the motorway, however, but had landed feet first on a refrigerated lorry carrying pork pies and was now headed for Dover. He had sustained no injury upon landing, and now he lay back and looked at the grey English sky. Then he laughed. So, life would go on. And he'd never been to Dover before. Now then, girls and boys, let's see if you've done your homework. Who can tell me what makes this train go? Miss, it's a funny colour. Don't be silly, Janet. We can see it's black. It looks good, I think. No, Miss, the other train pulls it up the hill with a rope on a round thing, you know, when it goes down. Well done, dear. You see, it's good for the environment. No smelly smoke or fossil fuels. Clean and cheap. Yes, Miss, it's a funny colour. Janet, are you colourblind? No, miss. It's called Afanicola. Mildred Micklewhite wasn't born to be a Mildred. She had Mildredness thrust upon her. She blamed her mother entirely. The fact there'd been Mildreds in her mother's line for 16 generations was neither relevant nor verifiable. It was November in her 45th year before she resolved the problem. She'd make herself inescapably famous. She mustered everything she needed, a sharp knife, cheese wire, gloves, a woolly scarf in case it got chilly, and a small pot of that stuff they use on rats. Waiting for the 104 bus into Colchester, she fondly pictured tomorrow's headline. Mildred Micklewhite, Manningtree's mundane murderer. patiently behind several tourists. As they dispersed, I filled the void, but a young couple hurtled in, shouting their demands. "'Are you queuing from the other side?' said the man eventually, feigning innocence. His wife wouldn't even look at me. "'Go ahead,' I said magnanimously. "'No hurry.' Four hot drinks and four individually cooked chocolate crepes later, I was finally asked for my order. "'One latte, please.' Oh, he said laughing, we should have let you go first. It's only been 20 minutes, I said through gritted teeth. Still, she wouldn't look me in the eye. Bloody grockles. You are listening to Bill's Big Bag of Only Onions.
washed up, too old, out of touch, not down with the kids. He'd show him he still had his finger on the pulse, his ear to the streets. He was Mr. Cool, the main man. He'd needed help lifting it onto his shoulder, but now he was upright, balanced, ready to go. Spotify, smartphones, Bluetooth earpieces, they could take a running jump. With sunglasses, baseball cap and a rucksack full of cassette tapes, and the emergency number for his chiropractor in his back pocket. Reggie teetered, then moseyed down the drive. Wham! Cranked up, full volume, blaring from his ghetto blaster. It was hot, and the preteen cousins were restless. Visiting Grandma was losing its novelty, and Grandma was trying her best to entertain them. She had a brilliant idea. Girls, she called, run to the store on the corner and fetch me some beer and cream. They took the money she offered and set off with great excitement. They giggled and teased as they skipped across the street to the liquor store. Their return was hurried, but much less bouncy. Hurried so the ice cream wouldn't melt, and steady so the root beer wouldn't explode. Grandma was making them floats. I did have a vision, a painting of a sail ship on my childhood wall, but it was different. It was bigger, and there were colours. I've been waiting for those colours to appear, and there was no tiny frame, no hanging on by a nail, and now here I am. The ship has sailed on a wind that was blowing clear, but I didn't feel it. And the oil paints fading from white to black, black to grey with brush strokes chipping on the ragged rigging. And I feel no breath of wind, no breath of wind to fill my sails. My room consists of four fossil grey walls, one metal desk with chair, and at least two bugs. He checks on me at regular intervals, offering a mixture of stern words and sage advice. I need release. I drum my fingers on the desk and take pleasure in its tinny symphony. When did I last eat? I hear his footsteps making their return journey. I try to pretend that I'm using my time wisely. For Christ's sake, Ella, stop acting like you're in prison. It was you who said you'd achieve your daily word count if you had no distractions. Napoleon Bonaparte had never been so angry. 
He couldn't believe he hadn't been chosen as captain of the St. Helena football team for the annual match against the Ascension Islands. His fury further erupted when he found he had been put in goal. He just wasn't a goalkeeper. His natural position was attacking midfielder. Didn't they remember him score that brace for the Elba Island eleven a few years ago? The manager took him to one side in the changing room. Can you really help us win? he asked Napoleon. Of course I can, replied Napoleon. <laughs> and they both and they both laughed. <laughs> Wivenhoe, oh Wivenhoe, you make me loathe to want to go across the seas to shoot the breeze in foreign countries that don't freeze. And though diversity of culture beckons, I guess I'd chase what I know, I reckons. My twisted fate would be to wait for no deepening of who I am, just a rebooted version of the same ram. I'd drag my foreign family round the places of my former life and faces and discover, upon my return, that Wivenhoe is now memory burn, a foreign place, beloved and lived by others who are not so stiff. day on a Thai river trip, deep in the heart of this so spiritual country, and at dawn we take our offerings to the temple by the riverside. The aroma of incense pervades the room as we remove our shoes and enter the sacred place and sit cross-legged before the young saffron-robed monk who says blessings for us as we bow our heads in grateful acceptance. Blessing over, he accepts our gifts of rice and exotic foods, thanks us for our offerings, and asks us if we have any cigarettes, which sort of broke uh, the moment somewhat. is running out in distant, far-flung, exotic places, and everything else is closed, you can always find one. From the most sanitised supermarket to the most grimy downtown store, somewhere there will be your salvation. When hunger strikes, you know you have a friend which knows no cultural or linguistic barriers, and which will see you through the lean, hungry times to better times. And all else you need is to find a kettle. Wherever you are on the rocky road of life, and wherever may be your destination, there will always be the pot noodle. The phlebotomist assured my wife that she came across many types of bleeders, good and bad. She recounted how one time she'd had a one-armed patient. If she couldn't get blood out of the only arm, there was no second option. Fortunately, a good sample was obtained from the usual place, the vein in the inside joint of the elbow. 
the patient's comfort to the fore, she had a cotton pad ready to put on the wound to stem the bleeding. It was all going splendidly until she said to him brightly, Hold the pad and press down tightly, please. Baby Belle surveyed the room. She was not a natural social climber, but her tight red outfit made her feel a million dollars, so what the heck. The ever-popular Cheddar was surrounded, as usual. She approached the group, but Stilton gave her a look of such disdain she quickly backed away. Rockfor and Gorgonzola sniggered. Bree and Camembert, at the end of the long, hot party, were all over the place. Parmesan was spouting nonsense and, frankly, beginning to grate, and no one wanted to get trapped by the stinking bishop. She sighed and made her way back to the Dairy Lee Triangles. World-weary yet incorruptible, the soldier monk guards treasure and the rule of the sacred order of knights. Around him the loyalty of erstwhile companions wavers as powerful enemies meet out barbarous death. Finally, alone, he looks beyond the now, expanding his consciousness, repulsing fear and the protests of his tired body. He rejects failure and loneliness. He does not heed physical promptings. His faith is ancient and steadfast. Within his spiritual life he sees great beauty and he believes in the wisdom of his calling. His deeds of courage and bravery recede to faint memories as instead he contemplates eternal life. Welcome to Westwood Ho Beach's annual Who Can Squeeze the Biggest Bottom into the Smallest Bikini competition, with more entrants than ever gathering in their hundreds from all over the world. The competition was wide open this year, but there wasn't a Brazilian in sight. The bronze medallion went to Ali from Algeria in her tan-coloured, tasseled two-piece, just losing out to Mona from Monaco, who snatched silver in her sexy semi-sheer sequin set. Stewards are still arguing over the unexpected gold awarded to Bill from Billericay in the first ever entry in a loose-fitting gold lame mankini. Harvey loved compost. He was the king of compost. Different bins were arranged for their varied components, qualities and ages. Heaps based on horse and cow manures added strength to his trailing courgette plants. Mounds of kitchen scraps packed the trenches he dug when planting potatoes. 
Nitrogen-heavy chicken manure made his bountiful soft fruits sweet and juicy, and barrels of fermented weeds stood beside the tomato glass house. It was time for Harvey to nourish the big apple tree. He removed all his clothes and climbed into the hole he had dug. He smiled and finally composted himself. with jangling bells, the sound that school teachers made to hasten pupils back to their classrooms. Then the tannoy blurts out, the train now arriving is the 925 to Jakarta. Slowly, the blunt nose of the diesel-electric locomotive appears, dragging its unwilling carriages alongside the platform. Doors open, people hurry out, impeded by those desperate to get in. Doors slam shut, then silence. Nothing can happen until the man wearing the scarlet kepi with two braids of gold around it waves his lamp and blows his whistle. Then, with a shudder, the train inches its way into the night. Daddy and daughter, aged ten, are on a skiing holiday in the Rila Mountains, Bulgaria. Meltem's choice of where to eat. Let's go to the Italian restaurant, as it proudly declares itself on the sign. There's no menu. Do we have to guess? Okay, let's order lasagna. No, we do not serve lasagna. All right. I'll have minestrone, then ravioli. Sorry, no minestrone, no ravioli. Meltem is getting hungry. Let's ask for spag bol. That's a sure thing. No spaghetti. But how can an Italian restaurant not serve spaghetti? Italian restaurant. Only the name. Here, Bulgaria. Only Bulgarian food. For six years, I barely moved without Thomas the Tank Engine in one of his forms. The sitting room was full of intricate Brio tracks, around which Thomas and his friends were propelled by tiny hands accompanied by enthusiastic sound effects. We watched videos, read stories, and attended Thomas Days at every steam railway on holiday and at home. Years later, at a business dinner, a monosyllabic Japanese engineer and train spotter's face lit up with the same joy as my son's when he realised I could talk at some length on the steam railways of the United Kingdom. I sat, sipping beer, outside a cafe atop a headland, towering over a beach. I watched enthralled as two mysterious men in black wetsuits, using snorkels, emerged from the surf, ran up the beach and bundled into a black car. It sped along the winding road up from the beach. 
My heart was beating faster and faster. Finally, it skidded to a halt in front of my cafe, and the door swung open. I gunned the last of my beer, checked that my snorkel and wetsuit were in my bag, jumped up, bundled into the car, and we sped off. The train from Lahore to Karachi is always crowded. You queue up for a voucher. To then get it stamped in the distant office, force your way through the hordes of multi-offspring families with unwieldy luggage and the odd goat. Biddy and betel nut sellers, porters touting you, the final queue to buy your ticket a blessed relief. But I still had to climb through a window to get into the sweaty jam-packed carriage. I swore, gutturally. A gentle hand tugged my jeans. Do not worry, said Mohammed, widower with two small children. All will be well. A lesson in humility. Having eyed the bargains in the window for several days, I found the swimming costume shop open. I was admitted by a wizened man in an ill-fitting wig. He swept me to the back where he enthusiastically showed me numerous items, slightly more glittery than the ones I'd seen, and at three or four times the price. Finally getting the chance to speak, I said, Could I have one from the front? Waving a ridiculing arm, he scoffed, You don't want one of them. They're for swimming. I was too flummoxed to ask the obvious question. I'm still wondering. lived in the East End, close to family and work. Recently married, living in rented rooms, weekends were spent relaxing. Pictures, bus to Epping Forest, visit mums, walk round London. Their sort didn't own their homes. But Bob saw the poster offering free rail tickets and tea to see the new housing estate. Trip out was a change. Quick look round, straight back would be fun. But when they saw the houses with front and back gardens, roads called avenues or drives, open spaces, they were smitten. They had to live there. They did, for 60 years. Wages in cash every week, with a slip for deductions. At home there was a long tin box with labelled slots in the top and separated compartments. We sorted our money and placed an amount in each compartment. Gas, electric, rates, coal, travelling costs, clothes, days out. Rest was housekeeping, food, etc. Everything was paid by cash. When the bills came, we would go to the office or shop to pay. 
There was always the unexpected bill and the need to borrow from another slot. Then our wages were paid into a bank and our first checkbook. Farewell to the tin box. contractors on site to complete the annex, pressure's on to get the work done on time and to spec. I'm project managing, of course. I won't relinquish control at this crucial stage. We meet, instructions are succinct, exactly what's needed, but like all good project managers, I listen carefully, play back what's been said. One mistake and, well, the consequences are dire. We part ways clear on our jobs. Without me, it all falls apart. Now, six teas, four with two sugars, two without, or three without. Two coffees, one black, no, both white. Damn it, another project management meeting needed. Commander Riker entered the transporter room with trepidation, but Chief O'Brien seemed surprisingly upbeat. Ready to beam you down, sir. But you should hurry. The delegates are waiting. <coughs> Thank you, Chief. I just thought you might not want to... Uh, since what happened between your wife and me, you might beam me into space. He laughed nervously. I am a Starfleet officer and you have my word that you will arrive safe and sound to accept your award in front of the entire academy. He energized, and as Riker dematerialized, muttered, Your clothes, on the other hand, are going halfway to f Vulcan. You have been listening to Bill's Big Bag of Only Onions. These onions were written by Ian, Phil, Jenny, Rob, Adrian, a different Ian, John, Angela, Anthony, Sue, Pat, Bill, Petra, Jake and Sophie. Only Onions is a Guppy production for Colne Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. It's your bill's big bag of onions.